Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport, the home of cycling in association with Lacquer Bicycle Insurance. I'm Graham Wilgos. Brad, another huge day of racing, and we have a special guest with us we for have today's pod. We have a special guest, and it's an absolute honour. Pippa York, thank you for taking the time out to join us. Thank you for inviting me. So, really appreciate it. Journalist and commentator Pippa York, welcome to the Bradley Wiggins Show, um, with, with an awesome cycling career behind you. In which you won. I mean, I, I, I don't know if I should hand the, the floor to you to talk about your own Palmares, but I'm too modest to mention it. The thing is, I'm not especially proud about my cycling career. So the things I achieved, I suppose you'd say, it's because I worked so hard. I expected to achieve them. So when when it when it happened, there was the slight happiness, but it wasn't. It was more a kind of relief thing, which was I think we saw yesterday with um, Alex Dowsett. You know, the relief of of you know for, for that the amount of work you've put in. And, um, and the kind of realization that you you're part of a whole kind of system, and it and it secures not only my kind of um, immediate career but everybody else's. And there's a kind of responsibility once you get to a high level in each team. Everybody celebrates, but it's more a kind of relief than a celebration. I don't think we have to announce Palmares more than anything. I think it, um, it doesn't define you. I think you define much more than that in recent days. And I mean, I don't think there's anyone involved in cycling that doesn't know your Palmares, really. Um, considering where cycling is now, where British cycling is now, on that, how do you view it now? Because there are more British professional cyclists than ever. We've had more British success than ever. But as a teenager, for me, growing up, watching your career, there was only really, by 93, when I was 13 and watching the Tour de France, there was only you in the Tour that year, Max Chandry, and after that, of course, Chris Boardman, but Sean Yates... We were very few and far between then as British cyclists. And to become a professional in Europe then, what you went through to get there was not only sacrifice, moving away from home, trying to gain a professional contract as a British rider, which they would always give the contract to a French person or whatever at that time. I don't think people quite realised just how hard it was to break into that. And to do that, you had to be something special athletically, which you were. You, the thing is, you, you had to go... So nowadays, a British rider can be British-based. Yeah. And there's, then, you know, then there's British-backed teams. Whereas before you... If you wanted to be a, a, a pro rider, you, it meant you had to go to Europe to do it. So you needed some kind of contact in France. So I went to France to be a rider. And I think you can kind of sum up how how you were treated and what level you had to achieve is in the same way that nowadays we see the, you know, the, we had that recent story about the black riders and how hard it is for them to, to kind of integrate into the pro, pro system. They have to be better than a white guy. And for us, when we started in the, at the end of the 70s and the 80s, just to be a domestic, you had to be better. What year did you turn professional? So I turned professional in 1980. So instead of going to the, the Olympics in Moscow, uh, I turned professional. But you got fourth at the Worlds, didn't you? But I'd been fourth at the Worlds before. so the, I, At the Amateur Worlds, wasn't it? At the Amateur Worlds, when I should have won. But um, Where was that? So that was in Valkenburg. Yeah. 
you know, to reach that pro level, it meant I had to go to France and race and, and be. So I ended up, I was over the kind of um, the whole season, I was the best amateur in France. ACB. At ACBB. So, Were there other British riders there then, or did they come So the only English-speaking rider was Phil Anderson. So only two of us survived the kind of... And Piper, he was after that, was he? No, I was there with Phil. Before Piper. So, so, we, so, we, so Piper came the next, um, mm. about two years later. So yeah, the way ACBB worked mm. is, when you turn pro, you recommend, recommended somebody to take your place. Yeah. So Paul Sherman was the first of the kind of ACBB, yeah. you know, kind of Anglo, Anglophones. And he was well-respected, wasn't he? So he recommended Graham Jones, who then turned professional. And then Graham Jones recommended me, and I turned professional. And I recommended Stephen Roach, right. and he turned professional. And Phil Anderson recommended Alan Piper, so he turned professional. And it went on like that, kind of through a various set of names. And most of us turned professional. So we were, there was a whole kind of ACBB kind of team that spread out. In a, and in you some, lived in a flat, didn't you? Like so we, we'd stay in a flat and, you know. Who did you live with? Oh, at first I was with a guy called John Parker, who didn't make the kind of initial triage. And then I got, so I survived the first kind of sort out. So the first selection of the, so they take too many riders for the, how many were going to be left and only the best survived. So you had to win races straight away at the Côte d'Azur. Yeah. So I survived that by winning races and John Parker got sent back and I got moved into the main apartment. Sean Yates was living with John Herity when he was eventually there. And he said there was no toilet in the flat. I know there was a toilet when we were there. It wasn't that and bad. And he had to wee off the balcony and there was a big green <laughs> patch down there. Or maybe that was just a thing that well, they wanted. That if there was a toilet, Sean would have weed off the balcony anyway. <laughs> I didn't want to say that. Pippa, when we were talking earlier, you mentioned that you took up cycling in the first place as a, as a youngster in Glasgow as a, way of, as a means of getting out into the countryside. So it was, it was a treat, you were saying, to get on the bus, for example. You'd go and see trees and, uh, and, and and sort of you know greenery yeah so so i was born in central glasgow so i lived less than a mile from the city center and there was no trees in our street or any of the streets from where i lived so when i was a young child my mum used to take us on the bus to the park to see trees and play in the park you didn't live in luxury either did you no, I was no. I mean, to explain what the Gorbals was. So, so the Gorbals was, was one of the kind of roughest areas of... It was said to be one of the roughest places in Glasgow, you know, where if there was going to be a murder, it would be somebody from the Gorbals that did it, or if there was going to be a bank robbery, it would be somebody from the Gorbals. But when you're a child, you don't see that stuff. You know, so for, for us, it was just where we lived. And quite often, we used to play in the coal yard opposite, you know, where we our house. We didn't have an inside toilet, so there was a toilet on the land and that kind of stuff. I mean, so... Nowadays, it'd be classed as poverty, but we, didn't, we weren't aware of no. being poor. So when I got into cycling, it was more of a way of going out into the countryside and seeing the countryside. And then I quite enjoyed the kind of speed thing of it. So when I did races, I enjoyed the speed aspect of it, and I still do. So the whole kind of um, competing with people, that kind of sparked an interest in me. And I like more competing against people and seen how good I could be than I did the kind of history of the sport and that kind of stuff. Mm. And Sorry, on that, when was the first time you realised that you were were capable of going on to what you achieved? Or did that come from someone else who go, this kid is like, not like we've not seen before? Oh. Because your motivation was just to get out and see. It wasn't a competitive one where you so, said, I want to be the best in the world. I, probably once I started, so I did a couple of races. I only did six races as a first-year junior and then the second year I was a junior, I discovered that I wanted to be competitive and I got better and better. So I wasn't the, I wasn't the best junior in Scotland, but I was almost the best. Yeah. And I realized that it was just, 
And I, I joined a, uh, another club called Glasgow Wheelers and Billy Boslander, who'd been a pro, and he explained to me that, you know, that your career was in stages and it was just a matter of percentages each year. That, and you achieved that improvement, you know, by upping your training load. So every year they, they would advise me on, you know, what kind of training to do, what, what to expect when I went to races. And I tried to, so every year I would do that. And as each year went on, I improved a couple of percent each time. So when I moved up each category, I was getting better. I you know, I was getting, I was in front. So, so do you put your talent down to talent, raw talent, or your application and grafting? Because you were a grafter, weren't you? So it's a mixture of both. So anybody who reaches professional level is champion of something. So... I was national champion twice before I went to France. Yeah. And then in France, I was, you know, best amateur in the year. So I wasn't French champion, but I, could have, I should have been world champion. Then I messed up by a fault that I made. So then I was good enough to be a, a pro rider. But in the, at every level I, I re- reached, so I could, have been, I could have been Scottish national champion and then British national champion and then best amateur or best, you know, competitive at international level. And I could have stopped at any of those levels. My talent ran out. I had enough talent, and then I have. I had enough worth ethic, and enough kind of um, health to cope with the workload, and I had the character to deal with the loneliness of it. That I could cope with the requirements to get to professional level, and then I could cope with the life that I was living as a professional. So I didn't have a family structure with me. So that loneliness did that stem from your childhood from a family aspect or the, the, the other thoughts that we now know that you may have been battling that time, that you felt lonely in that area that suited you as a professional cyclist because you knew you resonated with that feeling that you knew what that was like. So, so my parents brought us up to be independent, to not to rely on other people. But that wasn't the loneliest, would you say? Did you feel lonely as a child from a family aspect or was it because... No, I think I... I I only can, had to deal with the loneliness of it um, once I realised what independence was. So, so as a child, we were taught to be, you know, to be fairly independent, not to have to rely on our, our you know, brothers and sisters and your kind of family situation. If, you, if, you were, if we were going to be, be better ourselves, we would be stepping outside of what we knew. And, and that's how we were all brought up. So each, each of, of my parents' children, my brother and my sister, you know, we all went different ways and we didn't rely on each other for kind of any kind of backup. I, I coped well with loneliness. Did you make yourself lonely and isolate yourself? Or was that from this underlying thing that, you know, in terms of... I work? was quite happy with my own company. It came from the way that I was, we were brought up to be independent. Yeah. That, um, I knew I had to, as a pro, I'd have to rely on myself because I didn't have a family unit to be part yeah. of. Yeah. So when I came back after the race, I'd be in the flat on my own and I'd have to deal with that and... You know, people talk about the psychological aspects of it. So I did a psychological kind of um, assessment of who I was and what my weaknesses and strengths were and how I was going to deal with the weaknesses without affecting the strengths. So that's what I did. I analysed myself through this kind of um, uh, assessment and that gave me feedback. Um, and then I could apply that to the life that I had to live. And did you did you apply that subsequently in your time as as national coach as well? Because your relationship with Brad goes back to uh, sort of the, the late nineties or the mid mid to late nineties with you as, as national coach and Brad you coming yeah. as a junior yeah. too. Is is that something that you took and you were able to be either either more uh, sympathetic or empathetic with the with the riders that you had in your under your care? 
I think I probably understood, you know, when when you've been through that whole kind of, you know, these are the steps you're going to take. You want to be a pro biker? Okay, this is what you're going to have to do. And, and some, some of the young riders would say to you, oh, I'd like to be a pro rider. Well, liking something isn't good enough. You have to want it. And you'd get, and you'd get so you'd, you, Bradley would say, I, I want to be a pro rider. Whereas the other guys, oh, I'd like to be. And there's a big difference there in that mentality. When you like something, when you want something, it's totally different. You try to teach the ones that, oh, I like, the, the like of the ones who'd like to be, you know, you're going to have to want it because everybody else that you're going to come across wants it. And you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to compete with them. How did you distinguish from the ones you wanted and liked? Was that in an attitude or what, just what they It's mean? an attitude and it's a results thing. When it comes down to the really hard bits in the races and you'd say to the guys, right, this is when you have to be in the front and you're going to have to fight to be in that position, to put yourself in the position of maybe making the, you know, the split or the decision, the part of the race where it's the decision. And you'd see the guys and they'd fight and they'd fight and then they'd tumble backwards and that would be it. Whereas the guys who want it, they would just keep fighting. And those were the ones who would be in the front who'd make the decision. And they might, from then they might be flat out and they wouldn't have the talent, but they had the commitment. And then the ones who would go on to turn pro, they had both the talent and the commitment. As a, as a junior, Brad, but you, you must have been in awe of Pepper. Yeah, well, I was in awe of cycling, um, but I think that soon went to one side in the dialogue that happened. And it wasn't just about being in awe where you couldn't talk to someone. It was more, I realise this now looking back, it was, um, you know, for someone who was probably, before we meet, and we talk about perceptions a lot, the perception of Robert back then was very like, awkward, difficult to get on, not really a people person. But it was quite the opposite with our group and the juniors and particularly me and this willingness to help and never referring to themselves in a, in a condescending way. It was just, but I felt comfortable enough to be able to ask questions, you know, mm. what should I do this? And there was no brutality with it. It was just very simplistic. And I found it very, I think when I look back, I think it was probably actually influential at that point in my career of wanting to transition from a track rider into, you know, I think I must have said to you that, like, I want to be a professional, I want to do this. And the information I got back was very precise, very simplistic. It had a, it was a huge impact on my career. It was probably the catalyst. But having someone there that had achieved what I thought, so it wasn't about awe, it was probably more of a respect, but I believed because you'd done it and you made me feel like I could believe I could achieve that one day thing is being a pro bike rider isn't difficult all you need is a, is the talent the commitment the health and the ability to to cope with it mentally that's all you need and and if you've got all of those things you can become a pro bike rider and it's that those are the four things you need and after that it's a series of steps which you take and are you still coping with each of the aspects that you need and you have a lot of characteristics which aren't given to everybody or you develop them so you take the, the kind of, you, so everybody has a certain amount of ego and a certain amount of selfishness, but you have to t take that you, to you need that to succeed though, right? You, you, have to, you have to have a whole lot of ambition as well and not care what people say to you. Or you know, people used to say to me when I was, I said, I'm going to be a pro. And they say, oh, you can't do that. And I, and I think, well, why can't I? You could see, so when we were talking earlier, again, you could see that the, um, the, the men's team at the time, you said, 
didn't necessarily have the talent to, to, be, able the to, talent. to be able to support like Matt Shandry, for example. But you're so therefore you chose to encourage the juniors further because you could see that you thought they had the, the ability. When I was national coach and it was the British based, you know, and it's not a slight on them that they've reached their plateau where they are in terms of performance. Yeah. But they've reached barely international level. So they're not going to be competitive. So they're going to get dragged around. And after four hours, if they're lucky, they're going to get spat out the back because they don't have the, the physical ability to last any longer. They might have the other three characteristics, but they don't have the ability. Whereas Max Giandri has the ability to survive to the end and be part of the decision. Yeah. So then it's about a matter of, of, of discussing with him, how is he going to use those guys? And can he use them? Probably not. So how is he going to ride the race? Who is he going to base his race on? And when is he going to decide to start racing after the, you know, after five hours, the race starts for the pros and you're into the last hour or hour and a half of racing. And that's when the decisions are made. But you have to survive those first five hours without hurting yourself yeah. and being in the right places and know when to move up. What are your early memories of Brad? Was it clear that, was it clear to you that he had the ability then? So Brad had the talent. And then it's a matter of, can he cope with the workload? Does he have the ambition? And does he, do you have the health? Because it's okay coping with the workload as long as it doesn't have a detrimental effect on your health. And then there's the ambition thing. Have you got the commitment? You know, can you cope with the, the amount of kind of selfish stuff that you have to do? And you see the people. So if you're in a relationship, you can see how that affects the people around about you. Whereas you, oh, let's go, to, you know, let's go out for a walk. Oh, no, I'm going to have a lie down, that kind of stuff. And, and you need to find the, people, the right kind of people that are going to deal with that. But it also, as a person, you know, you see you're being selfish and it hurts you. As a person, you know you're being selfish and you know why you're doing it, but it's not, it doesn't always sit well with you because you know that it's not a kind of socially accepted thing to do. Yeah. And it's not what people expect of you. And that can be quite difficult. But also when the, then when you're in the front in the race, you forget all that mm. stuff and you're in the front and it's exciting and, and you're living the moments yeah. that, 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 you know, that people remember. So, so then you're in that whole adrenaline-filled world, which is, you know, which you don't realise you live in until you stop. Yeah. You gave me a training programme that winter after the 97 Worlds and I followed it to the T and we did weight training, which you talked us through, which now most riders do. And it was the early days of, you know, introducing weight training into your program. Um, but then I remember one day you rang me and said, um, you won't be hearing from me anymore because I've been fired. Because I've been fired, yeah. <laughs> which I think is, um, I remember being really disappointed and, um, but quite, you know, disrespectful, really. I mean, on what grounds do you get fired? But, you know, it, it's, um, I mean, what was that like for you? But it's interesting, isn't it? Because that was the catalyst then for you going off and living your life and, and being the person you are today. So, so, the, the, so uh, the five years after I stopped kind of um, racing were probably the most difficult. So I'm dealing with, you know, the, the loss of um, the ups and downs, the excitement and the, the, the adrenaline hits that you get from racing. So, so my life didn't have the highs and the lows that I was used to. So every day began to come a grey day. And then I was also having to deal with the feelings that, yeah, I'm going to have to transition. I think I'm going to have to transition. What, how is that going to, how am I going so to deal with that? So that was already on your mind then? So that was on my mind probably from, you know. As a racer? Probably from about the age of 29 or 30. 
you know, yeah. that, you know I'm, deal- I'm thinking, how am I going to deal with what I'm, what I'm thinking, you know? Did you have anyone to talk to about that then? Oh, no, you can't talk to anybody about it and nobody no. understands it because... Um, Did you question yourself? It's to- I didn't... Co- or you just knew? I think it's a, you're dealing with a whole lot of guilt and shame. You know, you, you see people, in the, you know, they, they, nowadays they come out with it and, you know, they, it takes quite a long time for them to come out. And was that informed by what's the cycling world going to make of this? That, that's that was informed by how, how, you know, so how transsexuals were dealt with then, you know, you were... It, there's a mockery of you and it's a scandal and it's, you know, it, it's a, it becomes a subhuman and thing. And that was manifested by you being Robert Miller, the King of the Mountains of the Tour de France and everything. It, that so, that so, just so made so it I'm, worse, did it? So I'm presenting as this kind of... Um, not peak of masculinity because I'm small and I'm not yeah, very big, you know, I but, know. but I, I'm achieving something in the macho world, which, which, so I'm the first Briton to win a, a Tour de France classification. So it's a big thing, you know, so it's yeah. a big thing for Britain to you know, have somebody who win a classification. Yeah. Even and nowadays, finished fourth in the Tour de France. When I finished fourth in the Tour de France, my first words on the Champs-Élysées were, I've equaled the great Robert Miller's fourth in the Tour de France. So when I raced, I looked at what came before me in terms of performance and I thought, I want to beat that. So that's how ambitious I was. So, so Tom Simpson would be world champion. So I was never a world champion. So I was annoyed that I'd never been world champion. You came pretty close on your first, first attempt though, right? So I, I could be in the front of the worlds and I'd see people go away and win the world. So I've seen how it's done. I knew the level, would, would, I, I was never good enough to, to be world champion, but I could see it happening in front of me. So, and I looked at the you know, various races, Dauphiné and all that, and you know, Who's going to? So am I? Am I? If I'm, a, am I going to be the first Brit to win this race, or am I going to be the first Brit to win um, Catalonia or something like that? And that's what the level I set myself. So if I didn't achieve that, I was d- disappointed. So when I, you know, so when you're the first person from a country to kind of achieve that, it's a big thing for them. So then more people get, you know, more people come along and they want to do it. So you'd have guys like Brad who'd come along and say, right, right, what's the level? What's what's come before me? Can I be better than that? When you, when I was national coach, I thought these. I never felt talented. I always thought, oh, it's just a matter of hard work. And I'd see guys who were more talented than I was as a junior, and I think, well, they just need a bit of, you know, pushing in the right direction. You know, a bit more commitment, a bit more ambition, and you'll you'll be a better rider than I was. I read an interview with you, Pippa, with uh, David Walsh in the Sunday Times, and you, you, I think you said to him that um, as a rider, you you felt like you were only five percent happy. Whereas, whereas now you you that's you just put a that person. the other way around. Yeah, as a person, yeah, I would yeah. only be five percent. I'd only be happy at five percent of my my kind of living time. You know, so in the race, you don't have time to think about a whole lot of stuff, you know, personal stuff, because you're absorbed in the race. Yeah. But when you stop and you come down after the kind of the, that first hour, and then you're back into being a normal human, normal human being, being time. Yeah. Um, then you've got time to think about who you are and what you're doing and who the people run about you. And then I could realize I wasn't happy. Yeah. I mean, it sort of, it sort of builds to Brad's point of when you were fired. Is that fair to say you were fired oh, yeah, from your job fired, as national yeah. coach? I, wasn't, I, was, I was trying to be delicate about it. I don't no, know that's why. The thing is, but, that's how brutal it was. Yeah. On what grounds? That I wasn't good enough to fit in what was coming next. I wasn't that insulted by being fired, by being saying, okay, right, what you have to offer, it doesn't fit into what, we, what we're going to do. Okay, that's fair enough. But then I had to ask for my P45. Yeah. And I found that more insulting that I had to, because normally they should have sent that out to me. So then I go down to the unemployment or whatever it is and say, okay, I've stopped working. I have to hand this over to the um, tax people. I had to ask for that. Yeah. 
they did that on purpose, not to, to make me feel to make to make you feel insulted. But did that give you that? Did that then give you to, no. to build on Brad's point? Did that give you a platform no, that, to that say just, that's that, just, putting... that just reinforced that I didn't want to live in the male world anymore? Yeah. When you look back, do you see that as like the catalyst? Because we said, had you survived in that job for ten years, you may never have transitioned. No, I'd have transitioned, but it, I would just have had, I would have had to have given up. Whereas they, I got fired, and um. You know, there isn't just one thing when you decide to transition. It's a whole heap of things. It's not as complicated. It's so complicated. And it's a long process as you well. Know, so so I, a... I had reached a really low point in my life. Had um, you always planned to transition? No. No. And no, I had to reach a point, a really low point where I thought, Shit, it has to be better than this. So then I had to transition. Yeah, yeah. So then I th sought medical help. Um, but, you know, I had to reach a really low point before I sought help. Because, you know, when you come from a... Um, that kind of sporting where we are used to relying on yourself um, and you're not allowed to show any kind of weakness, you, there's a defense mechanism that you always have that people are, aren't allowed to see who you, you know, who you are. How Did that of, include your family at that time? Yeah. Yeah. So you have that defense mechanism, you know, for, as a person, you have a certain amount of um, privacy that you cope with, you know, that you won't tell your partner or your friends and you need that amount of privacy. But when you transition, you have to give up that when you go to counselling and you go for psychotherapy and you have to kind of give up that and explain who you are. Which goes against your Which goes ingrained against, loneliness yeah, and ability and to the, be able to do that. the whole kind of macho world you've... But it also aids your ability to be able to cope with that. Yes. But at some point, that ability to cope with it got to a point where you got yeah, to... Yeah, you, you, I reached a point where I, I didn't cope anymore. I wasn't coping as a human yeah. being. In the, in the fact you didn't have anyone to speak to either. No, so then I had then I had to do something about it. And then it's a matter of, okay, at what level of transition am I going to be comfortable? You know, so the thinking at the time was, you know, so I started taking female hormones um, and that reduced my kind of testosterone levels drastically. It could have been that it wasn't for me. You know, the, the, the feelings that I got from taking female hormones might not have suited what my brain wanted. So I could have said, oh, no, that doesn't work. I'm not happy with that. I don't like the feelings. I don't like the kind of physical changes that it's made. Um, and that could have been the end of it. And then I could have had to exist, I don't know, as a transvestite or a cross-dresser or something, you know, looking for those kind of moments of um, emotional comfort. And at each level of kind of transition that you go through and you're kind of stepping up the hormone levels and the, and the kind of physical changes, I could have stopped at any one of them and been happy and then just had to cope with that level of kind of transition. Mm. But I don't think people fully appreciate the external pressures from a media point, which we probably can't go into for legal reasons, but I don't think people appreciate how I spoke a lot about it the last few weeks that that adds on impacts on people's lives and how they impacts gonna, your mental health. Yeah. And uh, so well, just, that's, that's just not that, but people around you, you know, that, that there are repercussions for this because this is, this is far greater than, than just yourself because yeah. there's family involved and things like that. So I, th I don't think people fully appreciate just, just it, it, cha it changes the, dyna the dynamic to to between. So you, I tried to explain it as, you know, so if you went home to, I don't know if you're married or not, but if you went, say you, I, pre I'll make the presumption that you're married. So you, you go home to your wife and your wife says to you, I'm not happy with being a woman. I'm going to transition to a man. And you think, well, I didn't sign up for that, but how am I going to be seen? And, and if you are, do you want to be in a gay relationship? Do you want to be seen, seen in that, that kind of same sex thing? 
you know, so it, it brings a question to everybody else's identity and sexuality. And I can see you thinking. <laughs> no, and you have, it, you you have know, children so, at school then, didn't and you? Then, and then your children are affected because, you know, so... Well, that's, that's what I was coming to. So there's, there's people around you who will be affected as well. And it's, it's not... Um, so, I mean, I would imagine there was no way you could have transitioned, for example, at the height of your fame... Well, no. Partly because it was a different time. You know, the eighties were, you know, far more sort of. Um, so the eighties, you had Section Twenty Eight. You had Thatcher um, had had banned the education of young people on kind of gay life or whatever you want to yeah. call it. You know, gay relationships. So, so it, you had Section Twenty Eight, which had been, which was the banning of that education in schools. So, so being gay is one thing. Being transsexual is a totally. It moves on beyond that. Yeah. To being totally unacceptable. At that time, so it was a, you, you know you were a moment you were a moment of entertainment almost. Um, your your fame would have compounded it as well. And your fame brings a whole lot of uh, and Bradley's seen this is once the media starts picking on you and has an uh, has an has something that they can um, exploit as a weakness or yeah. what they perceive to be a, a wrong, and and quite often transsexual is seen as wrong. Um, but the way they tell the story is quite sensationalised and also it's, infactual. Yeah. It becomes sensational and it becomes a scandal and it becomes the whole says, oh, we, we shouldn't let this happen kind of thing. And as soon as, as, soon as you use should, it implies wrong. And, the, and the, the way it's presented and the way it's quite often written in the media, um, it, can, it can be, you know, that story can be told really poorly and have an, an, an effect not only on the person who's directly the, the kind of object of mirth and... Um, scandal, but everybody in that little unit. How independent you were, your upbringing and for that independence, your strength as a person, when you say you got to a low point, I mean, how low was that? How low was that? I would be on antidepressants on a... Did it ever uh, potentially manifest into... I never felt suicidal because, you know, no. you read quite a lot about trans suicides. I've, I've never felt suicidal, but I can understand people that do. So, so because I'd done the kind of psychological um, training and how to cope with the, the parts that I didn't like about myself, I was able to cope with those, that kind of stuff. But I could understand why people would say, oh, I'm going to go and throw myself under that train that's coming. You know, I could understand that, but I knew the, the kind of the mechanisms to cope with that. But I, you know, I'd be on antidepressants, I'd be, I think, probably for most of my transition, for most of that three years. And then... Um, when the whole Daily Mail thing happened in 2007, I was back on antidepressants again after I'd weaned myself off of them. So I was back on, uh, I think, another two, three years then, mm. just because of the whole kind of circus that happened then. Because, you know, on perceptions we talk about, when I was juniors, your greatest perception in definition of you as a person was, you know, what's Robert like? It was, you don't give a f And it's funny that, you know, you actually did. Oh yeah, you do. But I know, but your perception was that. Yourself, you didn't really give a f And it just shows you what I was talking about. You never really know someone. And you know, you know why that is, because you have that, you need a certain amount of privacy. So if you can stop people coming and asking you stupid questions and yeah. taking your time, it gives you time to think about who you are and what you do in your recovery and all the rest of it. So the, the more, the less number, and David Walsh said to this to me. He said he, he wouldn't come and see me because he was he was scared of me. Yeah, <laughs> and I'd and I'd say well that was deliberate because if you came and and took half an hour of my recovery time, yeah, that's half an hour I didn't have. 
Was, was there a line? I think it might even have been published in a, in a, a French interview. But you said the only privacy you have is inside your own head. Yes. When you're at the Tour de France, it is that you, you and and you'll know this from you, and you'll know even even yeah. more from being yellow jersey and and the winner. The only time that you have to yourself when you're in the front of the race is when you're in your room on your own. Yeah, and I used to room on my own because I was the ninth rider. I was always and quite often, you know, you'd get you you beat the tour, and they'd like to see you pictures of eating your dinner. And somebody would come in and say, can I, can I take pictures of this? You know, you're eating your spaghetti or whatever. And you're hoping not to get it splashed on your jumper. Yeah. And so you look like a foe. And they'd ask, and I'd say, no, you can't. And they'd be really pissed with me. And I'd say, well, this is my private time. Yeah. I don't come to your house and take pictures of you when you're having your, your, your meals with your, your family and your, your wife or whatever. And you've asked me if you can do it. And I've said, no, because this is, this is, I can't, this is my privacy. And they'd go away really annoyed saying I was difficult. But they'd, if they hadn't asked, I wouldn't have said anything. But as soon as they asked, can I do this? It's either yes or no. And I would say no every time I'd say no. And, and how do you find it now? So how do you find, first of all, um, almost reintroducing yourself as, as Pippa York? And how do you find uh, a sort of social reaction to you as well? From, certainly from people who knew you before as Robert and people who, who now, now know you as Pippa? At first, it would be quite difficult. You know, the whole kind of coming out thing is quite difficult. It's quite a very emotional thing. Yeah. So, so I found that quite difficult. But as this went on, it's easier to deal with. So, so when I go back, you know, so after tonight, I'll go back and I'll analyse what's happened, how I felt about it, how I've answered the questions. So that kind of analytical aspect of my character has stayed the same. So I'm still looking at my performance as... Is this, is this podcast or if I do if I do any kind of commentating I look at my that and I analyse it and say oh that wasn't very good I so I'll that, do I that I find that absolutely fascinating and um I, you know having not seen you for a long time I don't see you as Robert I take you as you now and I see you as you now um almost a better version of you because this is the person you always wanted to be but there's a pathway to the memories which you can never deny of you remember when we spoke about this remember we spoke about and the only thing I can correlate that to is it's almost like you're talking to someone's widow of they knew everything about their husband, you know? Um, yeah, it's, I... It's, a, it's, it's... I see you as Pippa now. And that was instantaneous, by the way. That so, wasn't... so for my partner, Linda, it's, it's, there was that thing where, you know, you're dealing with the death of Robert, which is, you know, so they're dealing with the death of somebody, so they're dealing with that loss. So there's a grieving moment for them. Yeah that they don't have anymore. So people who go through the transition and they have really close, you know, so their partner or, or, or for parents, they're going, they're going to have to go through a grieving process of the loss of that, that person, if it's a child or partner. And um, that isn't something that I had thought about during my transition. I, I, I understood that you know, they were going to be affected, they were going to be exposed as being vulnerable and they, might be, they would be bullied, so, you know, in that kind of stuff, the stuff that happens at school amongst children. And um, you try to, you know, you try to cope with that, but, you know, it's going to happen. So, so you know that you, you, your children need a bit more support. Um, but I think nowadays when people see me for the first time after knowing me before, they're quite happy to see a happy person. That's where it starts with you because the awkwardness comes because you're more open and comfortable with yourself than ever. Yeah. And so the awkwardness only comes from another person when, you know, but you don't get that with you. The reason... You don't see Robert, you take your issues because of, of who you are as a person now. And that's instantaneous because 
you are who you are and I think that's you know I think when when someone is just comes out as gay or anything there's an awkwardness about them because they're not sure how the other but, but you're more sure of yourself than ever there was more awkwardness with you with Robert and unapproachableness yeah, because Roger R Robert has something to hide so so when I, when I did the thing with BBC Scotland with Ronan McLeod and she I was going to do an interview with them um a radio interview and then it became a kind of a visual thing and I said to her about halfway through it I said I want you to show the vulnerability that I have now because I'm not happy with being vulnerable but I accept it as part of who I am so when you live as a woman there's a, a vulnerability to your existence you know so so there's that threat of violence and um you know you you have to take care of yourself you're judged on appearance and all that kind of stuff and that develops a, a mental vulnerability that you 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 know you become aware of, and it's not something you have as a male. You know, you, there's certain aspects of your kind of life that you're not judged on, and um, and I, I wanted her to to show that that I wasn't that same person whether like you said where bounced off me. Now I don't have to present that, so I don't have to be that kind of defensive person and I can't be because you know my my story um doesn't allow me to be so then I have to kind of accept it and because you'd be quite short with people couldn't you, you could be very yes and I recognized that myself back then that, um but that's one of those things you know when you stop your career that you realize you're allowed to be vulnerable then because you won't be classed as a weakness when you're a pro a pro you know athlete at anything you can't show weakness because the people you compete with will exploit it. So when somebody says something crappy to you in the middle of the bike race, you just have to look like, oh, I don't care. Which is exactly what happens, isn't it? Mm. You know, so, so people, you know, people say crap to you. So you see, you see it in football matches and rugby matches, you know, where you had Zidane punch that guy in the, in the World Cup, you know, in the final, you know, he, he said something really bad to him and, he, you know, he's probably, it's probably on for 90, 95 minutes, you know, he said to say the same thing and he's lost it. Yeah. Is it Marco Maserati? You yeah. know, and he, he, I recognised that incident. I said, oh, he's been, he's been on his, his case ever, you know, probably years. Yeah. The, the, the headbutt in the chest, wasn't Saying it? the same thing and it's got to the point where he's like, you know, like, F this. And he smacks someone, you know, and it, and you get that, you would get that in bike races, you know, somebody would come and pick on you and you'd hear them saying about you, you know, you've come to take our women or you're taking our money or you, you know, you shouldn't be in our country, that kind of stuff. And um, if you didn't have that facade with it, the shit bounced off of, it would just get to you and, and, you'd, you'd, and you couldn't let it get to you. You know, you'd go back and I learned to take the anger that that produced and use that, you know, at the vital part of the bike race and hopefully then you know that made a little bit of difference all right we'll be back with more from the bradley wiggins show right after this lacquer's collective cover is made especially for cyclists for life on and off your bike lacquer has flipped outdated traditional insurance on its head with no more fixed upfront premiums instead your monthly contributions are based on the collective's claims that month your max monthly price is capped, but the savings are all yours. Plus, 80% of your money goes straight back into the collective, fixing, replacing, and helping. And the other 20% keeps their wheels spinning. It's as simple as that. And when things go bad, Lacquer's got your back. Claims are handled by experts and usually agreed within a day, with no depreciation or excess. They've ditched annual contracts locking you in. With Lacquer, if you want to leave, you can. Anytime. 
head over to www.lacquer.co where new customers can get £10 credit by signing up today with the discount code WIGGINS. Pippa, and, and this is a fact that I didn't know about you until we were talking just before we started recording. Um, is that something that, that drove you to, for example, um, qualify as a black belt in taekwondo? The, the taekwondo thing was different. I went out on a bike ride, a bike ride one time, and it was at Tour of Britain um, when I was looking after the Scottish team. And I went out on a bike ride at As- around Ascot, and this car cut me up, and I gave them the Vs. And they stopped and they jumped out. And these three lads jumped out. Who are you giving the Vs and all the rest of it? And they were posh kids. You know, they were posh kids from... They were at one of the private schools, but they were posh kids. And they were all bigger than me. And I thought, this isn't good. And so, And one of them had a... You know, found this bottle at the side of the road. And he, yeah, I'll smack you over the head with this and that. And I thought, okay, fair enough. And I went on my way and they went on their way. But it was a road rage incident. But, you know, if I hadn't backed off, they would have, you know, it could have got worse. Sure. And I thought, I don't know what to do in that situation. So then I thought, you know, and I, and I was getting tired of cycling and I thought, I need to learn something new. So then I thought, I'll do a martial art. And the only martial art that was on at the local um, sports centre where I was was Taekwondo. So I went to Taekwondo and I found I quite liked the discipline of it because a martial art is, you know, it's an army thing. So it's, it's not like cycling where I had to learn everything. So I learned, you know, what, what are the steps? You know, I want to move up the grades. This is what you have to do. And I, and I, quite, I, I liked that. I liked not having to think about what I had to do for training because it was all laid out. And I wasn't very good at it. But the, um, the application of it, had, because you're a cyclist, you, you work on a fixed plane all the time. So your flexibility is rubbish because you've been stuck in a fixed, fixed position for years. So my flexibility was rubbish, but my commitment to it was the same commitment I had to when I was a pro. And when you go to your black belt grading, it's judged not on your, the physicality of what you're doing, but on your commitment to it. So when you go to sparring and you're sparring with somebody better than you and they're gonna hit you, are you okay with that? Are you committed enough to that you can take those hits and still stand up straight. And I was, because I, I'd learned how to do that from being a pro athlete. So, and I wanted to go to black belt. So my um, Taekwondo thing was interrupted by my transition. And um, so I, I got to just before black belt, before I transitioned, then I went back to it after I'd finished my transition. And I found them totally accepting of it. So I was probably the first, I think I was the first person who transitioned. But they had no problem with it. None at all. So it wasn't like the world I was used to, that kind of um, macho world. Because you would think that a martial art would be quite macho, but it's not. So there's, there was just as many women there as men in the club in the, when training. Um, so I did my black belt as Philippa. And then I did my second degree black belt as Philippa as well. And the, the aspects of it, I really enjoyed because I was kind of attracted to that kind of obsessive compulsive nature of it. Oh, this is what you have to do. And this is, these are the steps that you have to take. So I was okay with that. And, the, and I could stand up in front of the class and take the training and not be too intimidated or not to show I was nervous because that was part of the process to be a black belt or to go towards black belt um, grading, 
you know, you'd have to take the class now and again, and you'd have to do the training, and you'd have to instruct the others, the lower belt, the lower grades. So I learned to do that. So that kind of helped me in my transition that, you know, I, I, like nowadays I can stand up and I can talk about my transition and I'm okay with it. So, so I, I got something out of doing a martial art um, more than just the kind of physicality and the flexibility and being a black belt. So, you know, most people do it and they go, I'll be a black belt and then they stop. And I, and I, and I almost did that and I, oh, I'm a black belt now, I can stop. And I thought, well, everybody stops. Why don't I do second degree black belt? And, you know, the time... To, the, and when you get to black belt, you realize that what you knew about Taekwondo before was nothing. It's, it's almost like being a pro when you turn pro and you think, oh, I'm a pro now, I know everything. And you realize that you're at the bottom of the, the pile again, the hierarchy. And some guy who's, you know, seventh degree black belt, who's in the 60s or 70s, does sparring with you and takes your head off. You know, and, and they're not, they, they don't move. So yeah. it's normally sparring, you know, so you, it's a bit like boxing where the really good boxer stands in the middle and thumps the other one. And the one who's weaker moves about. It's the same in Taekwondo when you do sparring. You spar for somebody better than you. You're the one that's always moving. You're the one that's knackered. And they're the one that can take your head off when they feel like it. <laughs> and you only realize that when you get to black belt. And you, then you go to the next level and you, get, you, get, you learn a lot more about the history of it and the reasons why you're doing certain things. So, that all, so being, doing Taekwondo came from being the road rage incident and out cycling. Brad, you, we, we didn't quite get to, you wanted to ask one more question. Yeah, just, I mean, it's a fascinating story, you know, heartbreaking in some senses, but then to see you today, it's, um, you know, to me, just as inspirational as you were when I was 17. Um, there's anything, do you think there's any difference now, any change, do you think things are better for someone that was in your position now within cycling for it to be better and easier to transition? Or do you think it's not much has changed if someone's in your shoes now, within cycling, within... I think it's, it's the, the transition thing is still a, such a difficult moment personally. Um, the understanding of the whole issue of, you know, the, the case of a trans woman going to be, you know, competing with women, um, that hasn't been totally resolved because there's not enough people, you know, to do the study. But it's certainly easier socially. It's, it's, More acceptable, it's, it? it's acceptable now, whereas before it was tolerated... You know, and, be, and before tolerated, it was it was mocked. So it's went through those stages of mocked, tolerated, accepted, and people. You know, it's it's not a whim, and it's not you know a phase you go through. It's just something you're you're having to deal with. It's what nature's given you to to you know. It's your issue. Yeah. Um. And I and I think and that's one of the reasons I talk about it is so it's an educational thing that, okay, this is what I was feeling. This is how I dealt with it, and this is what's happened afterwards. And at, at no moment has it been. Has anybody need to be fearful or or feel endangered or, or any or you know? So I didn't transition to dominate women or to change how women live. You know, I I transitioned to live in the world in their world and to fit into it. And that's the case for almost everybody who's transitions. You're not changing that world that you want to be part of because you actually do want to be part of that. You know, you've accepted. Um, how you're going to live as a female and you learn how to do that and you learn how to cope with that and, and how to fit in. And um, I think that's what, you know, that, that's probably the, one of the big aspects of, you know, of, of education is, is that you're not changed, you're not attacking women and you're not trying to dominate them, you're trying to fit in with them. 
Yeah. So aside from being you now and being free, comfortable with you and being able to commentate and talk on sport that you did and have so much knowledge on, do you still, is there an extra motivation or the back of your mind that, because not only by talking about it is because there's no shame, you're talking about it because you're free as a person now, that you might just help someone as well. So is that a motivation or do you realise that it won't fail to affect someone by talking about it? It's interesting because my, my daughter asked me the same thing. She's, you know, do, 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 by speaking about the whole kind of trans issue stuff, um, do I feel a duty? No, I don't feel a duty, but I feel it's a good thing to do. So I, I, don't, I don't have a duty to do it because, um, you know, I'm, I'm my own person, but it's a good thing to do that if it helps, you know, it will help some people. It might not, it doesn't, it won't help everybody because everybody's transition is different. But would it have it, helped you back then? It would have helped me, yes. Yeah. So I... And did you look at anyone in other parts of culture and think, you know... You know, certain aspects, you know, certain women I look at and think, yeah, I kind of like, like you know, how they live or how they talk about um, things. Um, it's a bit like everything, you know, when you're a bike rider and you look at certain riders and you think, oh, I like the way they race yeah. and you try to do that kind of thing. It's, it's the same when, you know, when you're in my personal life, you know, that I take clues and aspects of other people and, and I try to apply them to myself so but for a young transitioner i think it is it's a bit easier because there's more information you have the internet so now you there's all that stuff's out there and you know if you want to learn what the various stages are you you can and you can ask other people you can you can reach almost anybody now on the internet so the the, the access to other people's yeah. um experiences is easier and when people ask me stuff, um, I've, unless it's really, really personal, um, then I'll give an answer, and I'll try to give that answer as simply as possible. But it's for others to educate themselves as well, for all of us, you know? Yeah, for sure. Because that makes it easier, not fear-facing that adversity and bigotry that's associated with it. And it's, I don't think, it's not just a kind of trans issue, where, you know, you look at, you see people, um, so you had Philip Schofield coming out as gay, you know, he's yeah. in his 50s. And there's no real shame to that. You know, there hasn't been any kind of um, social kind of shame into stigma, that. Yeah. You know, there's no social stigma to it. So, but he hasn't felt able to do that. And do you want that for your children and the people that come after that? You know, your children's children. No, you don't. So then you, 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 you try to educate your children to be a bit more open. And it, it's okay to be who you are. So that's what I try to do. So I'll talk about cycling and I'll talk about trans stuff and the, the human rights aspects of it and the, why there's, there isn't any fear and danger and this thing. One thing I would like us to touch on today is Ghent Wevelgem. Um, not specifically the result, but Mark Cavendish's interview yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Um, so Cav... Uh, Turning, turning up on Belgian television um, very, very shortly after he finished the race um, and breaking down in tears. Mm. Um, so we've actually got that clip now. Mark Cavendish, I can see it. and It was a really hard, hard day for you. You're getting emotional. How, how was your day? Perhaps the last race of my career. Do, do you really think this is your last race? Did you want to show something? Brad, what do you make of this one? I mean, Cav saying it could well be his, his final race as a professional. Mark's like my little brother. I love him. We get, you know, it's not nice watching him cry on the telly like that. Um, I don't think it's, it's, 
for someone who's done so much in the sport, world champion, you know, San Remo winner, 30-odd stage in the Tour, to cat be a catalyst and one of the people that catapulted cycling to where it is in this country, you know, have to exit a sport that he loves and thrives on like this through other people's decision. He, you know, you always want to have an element of control when you leave the sport. And Pippa knows this too well, you know. You know, she left the sport when her team folded the week before the Tour de France, having won the national title. And it's not a nice way to go. You always want to feel you're, you know, in control of when you decide how to stop the fanfare that goes with it. So to see Cav go like that, if it is to be his last race, I must say, is not very nice because part of me thinks he should deserves a far more... I understand their financial implications and teams and money and this and the other, but someone somewhere should stand up and go, this guy deserves a far better send-off than crying at the end again, well again. And it's not with a victory, but just with the respect he deserves because it's not till he's gone that we appreciate what this guy has done for British cycling and cycling as a whole. Mm. The greatest sprint of all time. Unquestionably. And our second world champion since Tommy Simpson. Yeah. Pippa, what did you, what did you make of this one? It's like Brad said, you know, you, you come into pro ranks a small person and you don't want to leave a small person, and you know. And if you you develop, your career develops in a kind of you know that kind of bell curve, and you can see it coming, but you don't want to leave in a crappy way. You know, you want to leave with a bit of dignity, and if you can't, it really it, that's really hurtful. Mm. And you know, for the greatest sprinter of all time, if, if you know if Cav was Belgian or Dutch or French, you know, somebody would take him on in the team. You know, despite his lack of performances this year, you know he he would be a much bigger personality than he than he is in Britain. Well, we've actually got an interview with Rod Ellingworth as well. Orla Shenoui spoke to him earlier today. And Rod, I know you're keeping an eye, a very close eye, on all races right now. Mark Cavendish was racing in Ghent-Vevelgem today and said on Belgian television that that could have been his last race. What can you tell us about that? Okay. Um, well, I mean, we're still talking. Obviously, you know, due to this situation this season, everything's happening later in the season as well, you know. So uh, recruitment is happening later. Uh, we, we're still not complete for next year. You know, we've, we've really recently only just really secured the finances going forward so um you know mark like many riders are out of contract at the end of the year so there's plenty of discussions going on um so yeah I, I mean, obviously mark's um you know getting to that age where maybe he's starting to think about post cycling um you know and, and, and you know he's not had the most successful of seasons that he was perhaps after so um i haven't spoken to him um about that in the last few days but you know, let's see. Uh, I think the next few weeks will be quite critical for all, for all riders who are out of contract. So Rod actually said that they're still in discussions with Cav. Yeah, and, Rod and, the and, team. Rod, Rod's the manager of the team. Rod needs to, yeah. Just, I, don't, I wouldn't imagine it'd be about money or anything like that, but just sign the guy, you know? Give him, you know... It's all right being a manager and this, I've got, you know, can't put personal relationships, but sometimes, you know, Cav has transcended the sport and he's Cav. That's why we call him Cav. You know, we were like Anton Deck, me and him in the day, Cav and Wigo. And, uh, you know, with the season we've had, it's very, very difficult, but, you know, he, he deserves, he would race till he's 45 if he could. The thing is, he still comes with, there's still media exposure with him. Of course there is, yeah. 
Because even if you get, and I remember I'm saying to this, even when he gets dropped, people talk about him getting dropped. He's a household name. Because he's Mark Cavendish. He's the, you know, he's the greatest sprinter there's ever been. You know, so there's, there's still, you know, publicity and, and media coverage of him, even if he's not winning races. But he's just, also... Just by being there. But I'm, yeah. I'm sure when you're on a team with him, he's influential in how that team functions. He's personality on and off the bike. But, but like you, elevated the sport within the UK... There, there have been catalysts within British cycling, you know, Tommy Simpson, Pippa, you know, Chris Boardman, David Miller, you know. You're missing yourself. Well, then me and Cav, you know, in that era, the uh, part and parcel of why people get on a bike and ride their bikes, and it's bigger than ever. And if that is to be his last race, then get him, get him organisers, get him up on the podium and fake this guy. Don't let him walk away crying like that in an interview. No. And I think that's a shame. And I know we've had a difficult year and he can't do the six days because of, you know, social distance and stuff, but... Yeah. You saw that from Mark Renshaw with the Tour of Britain. Yeah. You know, his light, it was when it, the, the last day of the Tour of Britain that he rode was his last day of racing mm. and they had him up on the podium and there's a presentation and all the rest of it. And, he, and that was because he was Mark Cavendish's lead-out guy. So he wasn't Mark Cavendish, but, you know, everybody knew who he was. And, you know, as soon as he's up there and he gets to give, you know, kind of leave with dignity, but I don't... I'd hate to yeah. see Cav leave with them, yeah. you know. Give him another year. Say it's his last year. And everywhere he goes, it's like a you know, fate him. Because mm. you don't leave people leave the sport like that. No, you know, you all won't. great sportsmen get to leave in their own way, don't they? Yeah. And he does... I don't like seeing him drift off like that. I'll pay his wages next year. I ain't got any money, but I'll pay his wages. <laughs> well, well, we hope Cav gets what he deserves. Well, I'm worried he won't, you see, because cycling is the way it is and it's full of <laughs> And... Someone's got to step in. Brailsford, come on. Sign him for Ineos for another year. Come on. Come on. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Bradley Wiggins Show by Eurosport. Thank you to our sponsor, Lacquer Bicycle Insurance. Brad, thanks as ever for your thoughts. No, I, this, you know, for once this episode ain't about me. It's a, thank you, Pippa. Importantly, Pippa, thanks ever so really? much for joining us it's on the Bradley Wiggins Show. An absolute um, pleasure and an honour. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, quite right. Pippa, if we want to follow you on social media, where can we find you? Oh, I'm on Twitter. Yeah. Philippa York. At Philippa York. You can follow Brad at Sir Wigo. Yeah. Plus, you can follow Eurosport on Twitter at Eurosport underscore UK. And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you, too, to our producer, Pete Burton. Pete and finally, Burton. from me, Graham Wilgos, it's goodbye. If you've enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, share your thoughts and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Brad, we'll be back with a bonus episode tomorrow. We will. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.